Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, the library of sessions recorded at the Rabbit Room's annual conference, which celebrates art, music, story, and faith in all their many intersections. Today on the Hutchmoot Podcast, we're excited to share with you a session led by Lanier Ivester and Steve Guthrie called The Indispensable Feast from 2021's Hutchmoot Homebound. Feasting is one of the foundations of human culture, both sociologically and theologically. Steve and Lanier lay groundwork both for understanding why we feast as well as providing practical advice for the occasion. Enjoy. Hello, it's good to be with you. I'm Steve Guthrie, and I'm going to be presenting along with Lanier Ivester today. And we're, we're going to be talking about uh, feasting. The, the title of our talk is The Indispensable Feast. Um, but you could definitely be forgiven for thinking that maybe this is the wrong moment to be talking about feasting. So when we read the news or talk with our friends, it doesn't feel as if we're in a season of songs or decorations. Instead, the last two years have been marked and marred by polarization and anger, distrust, and frustration. In our nation, cultural and political tensions have spilled over into violence, and we've become newly aware of the pain and anger around issues of race. And of course, globally, a pandemic has disrupted lives in ways that would have seemed unthinkable to us just a few years ago. So at such a cultural moment as this, it may seem as if there are any number of issues that are more pressing and any number of discussions that are more appropriate. And all that came to mind this summer. Um, I was reading... Bowling Alone, um, The Collapse and Revival of American Community by the distinguished Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam. Uh, The book was first published in 2000, and since then it's been recognized as a classic study of the ways in which community, civic participation, and social connectedness have declined over the last decades of the 20th century. So, Putnam surveys a huge range of data and considers some of the possible reasons for this decline. So, for instance, maybe people are less connected now because our society has become so much more transient. Or maybe it's because there are more families with two working parents and fewer stay-at-home parents. Or maybe it's because there's more financial stress on families and we become busier at work. Each of these, in fact has had some impact, but there's one change that seems to have made a bigger difference than any of them. I wonder if you have any guesses what this figure I see someone in the back. Well, I'm not going to give you an opportunity to respond. Um, I was shocked, actually. Amazingly, at least from my perspective, Putnam says that the growth in television watching turns out to be a more important factor in the decline of community over the last half of the 20th century than any of the other changes that I've mentioned. Here's a representative quote. Dependence on television for entertainment is not merely 
a significant predictor of civic disengagement. It is the single most consistent predictor that I have discovered. Nothing, not low education, not full-time work, not long commutes in urban agglomeration. That's the first time I've ever said agglomeration in a public setting. (laughs) I'm so glad we could share this. Um, Not poverty or financial distress is more broadly associated with civic disengagement and social disconnection than is dependence on television for entertainment. Isn't that amazing? I actually found that hard to believe, but Putnam comes with you know, a whole raft of data and social surveys. Now, what's the point of that? The point is not to disparage TV watching. I like TV too. I'm grateful for the cameras in the room that are making it possible for me to come to so many of you. Um, and in fact, Putnam's book was published in 2000, so we'd, we'd need to rethink all of this in light of the advent of the internet and the ways that we engage with media. But what I would like to highlight is the way this connects with our topic of feasting. One thing that this information demonstrates is that there is a vital connection between community and leisure. Remarkably, and in ways we may not have considered, the health of a society is vitally connected not just to what we produce, but to how we rest. It suggests that the flourishing of a community has to do not only with our economic systems, our government structures, institutions of higher learning, but also with our patterns of celebration and our practices of enjoyment. Um, In just a moment, Lanier is going to talk about a philosopher and theologian named Josef Pieper, Uh, Pieper's best-known book carries a title that summarizes the point. It's called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. So, to put it simply, the life and health of a culture cannot be separated from the business of feasting. And so we might say, precisely because of the tension division, and polarization of our culture, it's a good time to give some thought and attention to why and how we feast. Um, Lanier is going to say a couple of words about maybe some of the impediments that we face as we pursue this. Thanks, Steve. Um, and thank you for the introduction as well. Um, so, sadly, as you pointed out, we live in a world in which the whole concept of feasting and celebration, not to mention the social context within which such things occur, has become increasingly foreign, if not dangerously quaint. It's common these days to walk into a house or open the pages of a magazine and be confronted with these huge plaques or oversized letters shouting at us to dwell or gather or feast. But the irony is that these words are proclaiming themselves into empty rooms oftentimes. Families rarely eat together anymore. The cultural locus has shifted, as Steve has pointed out, from the dining table to the television set, or to the various screens scattered throughout the various rooms of the house, or the McDonald's drive through This is not merely a cultural problem. I would say that it is a spiritual crisis. Because increasingly, as society loses its grip on the whole concept of a shared life, 
as the ideals of feasting and celebration and community become more and more antiquated and distorted, the church finds herself at a critical crossroad. Do we as Christians rely merely on the institutional church to curate a feasting ethic for us? Do we burrow underground, as it were, and just try to survive a long winter of isolation and loneliness? This estrangement, not only from our fellow human beings, but from the heavenly order of practical fellowship? Or is there a better way? In his book, Sabbath, Dan Allender points out that Jesus' way of being with others was a feast ethic. And what that means, I think, is that the way he moved among us, the way he interacted with people when he walked on this earth, consistently pointed to why he was here, to lay a table for the life of the world. The Eucharist is not only the center point of the Christian church service, it is the center point of all history, towards which and from which all true feasts derive their meaning. Ever since Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, the church has been looking forward to another feast, a feast comprised of all nations and races and tongues, at which all differences have been laid aside and all old grievances forgotten, and everything sad has at last come untrue. But in the meantime, we've been given this tremendous opportunity, I would even say this exigency, to receive all of creation, all the practical matter of life as gift and grace, and to offer it back to God and to each other as experiential evidence of our redemption. Taste and see that the Lord is good. This is not just an ideological construct or a theological metaphor. I believe that we were meant, quite literally, to sit down at the tables of our lives and taste the actual goodness of our God in the sharp, sweet, bite of a perfectly ripe peach, or the buttered warmth of a fresh slice of bread, in the light of a friendly eye and the heady exchange of thoughts and ideas, in a cup of Darjeeling or a good glass of Bordeaux, raised in the name of a shared hope. The Rabbit Room community lives and espouses a feast ethic. I think that's evident even in this virtual experience of Hutchmoot this weekend when so much care has been taken to give people this incredibly intentional, beautiful, nourishing communal experience. The more I've talked to people over the years, the more I get the sense that while the ideal of feasting is very real and present among us, sometimes the literal practical idea of it can seem somewhat intimidating. If you didn't grow up, for instance, in a family culture where feasting and hospitality, shared celebrations were part of the normal fabric of life, it can feel very daunting to think about bringing that down into the realm of your own unique circumstances. It's for this reason that while Steve and I want to give you some meat to chew on with regards to what it even means to feast and why it's so important, we also want to arm you, hopefully, with a few basic tools to help you in flesh some of these wonderful realities in your own life. Now, before we press on, I would like to quickly acknowledge a few of the thoughts that might be buzzing at the edges of your mind as we're talking about these things. Some of the perceived impediments to the kind of lifestyle of feasting and celebration and hospitality that we're talking about. This is, of course, by no means an exhaustive list, but I do think it's a fairly universal one. And everything on this list has one lie in common. Lack. Paucity 
in some shape or form. The first we can all identify with, I think, lack of time. We live in a culture from which convenience has stripped us of all sense of real leisure, the sheer timeliness of time, if you will. But think, as Oswald Chambers reminds us, of the enormous leisure of God. He is never in a hurry. We are always in such a hurry. But there's always time to be obedient. And the lovely thing here is that hospitality, which is a value inherent, of course, in all feasting, is a command which Scripture invites us to practice. There's no assumption that we're all good at this. And there's no hurry to become proficient at what a feasting ethic looks like for you in your particular set of circumstances. For I promise you, it will look different for every single one of us. Now, I'll I'll touch on this later, but the bottom line is that we make time for what we value. And just because something isn't easy doesn't mean it isn't necessary. So, Secondly, uh, a lack of resources. Again, this is a perceived lack, and it's a pernicious one because it obscures the central gift of a feast, which is love. Better a dinner of herbs where love is, Solomon tells us, than a fattened calf with strife. The early Christians called their communal meals love feasts because not only did everyone pull what they had, love was the very force and function of their gathering. Love was and is the real feast. It's very easy to let our perceived lack spiral us down into envy and comparison. There are endless ways to enact the mysteries of our faith and fellowship with other people. We cannot let our financial situation our relational status, or our living arrangements determine whether or not we're going to live into a kingdom economy. For if God is leisurely, he's also endlessly creative. All he asks of us is the willingness to offer up the loaves and fishes of our individual lives to the larger purposes of his limitless kingdom. And finally, there is the opposition of our own inadequacy. Not just what we have to offer, but who we are. Laying the table is both an invitation and a risk. Just ask the rich man of the New Testament who couldn't get anyone to come to his party. It's a sacrifice not only of time and resources, but of our own vulnerability. Now, my mother was the most consummate hostess I have ever known. A southern lady to the marrow of her bones She knew how to set a table for people that fed their hearts and their souls as well as their bodies. Without a drop of pretense, she pulled out her wedding china at the drop of a hat. She employed employed her grandmother's silver tea service, not just for parties, but for my sister and me, every single day. She was an incredible cook, and she possessed the kind of warm, merry heart that drew people into our lives and into our home with this irresistible force. Whether it was a formal dinner party or a backyard barbecue, she brought the same sense of delight into creating this set-apart space for people to enter and be loved and cared for. And she was one of those aggravating people who made it look easy, at least to the outside world. For my sister and me, cleaning up after a party was almost as much fun as the party itself. I know that sounds strange, but it was because we had this intimate time together in the kitchen with my mother 
going over all the details, savoring the happy moments, iterating and reiterating all the things that we wanted to remember. This was the culture I grew up in. This was normal for me. But I once heard my mother say something that completely shocked me. And it's something that I've carried with me as a kind of sympathetic companion as I've moved into my adult life and my own hostessing capacities. Mama was talking about that final moment right before the doorbell rings for the first time. When everything is ready, the table is laid, the food is simmering, the music is playing, the candles are waiting the last touch of a match. The house holds its breath, as it were, and time stands on tiptoe awaiting the joys to come. Don't you just want to run away and hide? She asked me. It never occurred to me that anyone as outgoing and accomplished as my mother could ever feel that way. But it brought me a strange sense of comfort. Of course she did. Of course we all do if we rightly reckon our own frailty against the vast cavern of need carried in the heart of every person who crosses our threshold. Of course we're inadequate. Of course we're not enough. But thanks be to God, we don't have to be. All we have to do is show up to these given lives of ours. All we have to do is make space in our lives and in our homes for the love that longs to be incarnate among us. Mama did it anyway, and so can you, and so can I. So, moving back into the realm of the philosophical for just a moment, I would like to think about some of the foundations of feasting. What differentiates a feast from an ordinary meal? And why does it matter? Steve is going to guide us along the trajectory of what we're acknowledging ultimately and acting in our feasts, but I would like to spend just a moment defining what a feast actually is. The German philosopher, uh, as Steve has already mentioned, Josef Pieper, pointed out that the ability to celebrate a feast is one of the two conditions of a meaningful existence, the other being the act of contemplation, and both incidentally, being utterly dependent upon our relationship with leisure. It is one of the major ways, if not the central way, that humans accept and express ultimate truth. Even, Pieper writes, when this truth is beheld through the veil of our own tears. To express such acceptance, he goes on, such harmony, such unity in non-ordinary ways, this has been called since time immemorial to celebrate a feast. In other words, the thing which separates a feast from a mere social event or a revel is intention. Acceptance of reality as it is and reality as it will be. There can be no feast, be it a birthday party or a Christmas dinner, without holding space for both our grief and our hope. The bright sadness of this in-between time, this now but not yet of Kronos pierced with the longings of Kairos. Now, another thing that Pieper affirms, and I think it's very important, is that art and artists are the requisite guests at the festival. I love that designation. A feast without song and, I'm sorry, a feast without song and music, he writes, without the visible form and structure of a ritual, without imagery and symbol, Such a thing simply cannot even be imagined. I feel like I could write a whole book on that one line. (laughs) Um, But the way and intent with which a table is laid, 
The imagery and symbol of candles and wine, perhaps, or the child's guileless pluckings from the garden, the lyric of laughter, voices raised in song. These things mean more than themselves. And as G.M. Hopkins wrote, God is so great that all things give him glory if you mean that they should. This is a stupendous reality. And we need the artists to help us articulate it. We need the poets and the painters, the gardeners and the chefs, the singers and the storytellers, the woodturners, potters, metal crafters, spinners, all people skilled in their trades. All these fellow fools who help us dream of a kingdom that is both coming and already among us. I was enjoying that. I just wanted you to keep going. (laughs) I've got to get up and talk again. So we're thinking about what is a feast? What sets a feast apart from any other sort of gathering? And Lanier uh, introduced us to some of the thoughts of Joseph Pieper in that regard. I'm going to highlight another feature of the feast, and that is that a feast points beyond itself. Uh, When I was a little boy... I knew the word party almost exclusively as a noun. So there were birthday parties, housewarming parties, graduation parties, and so on. What all of those different parties have in common is that they are all about something. In each case, some other term qualifies the noun party. So the birthday party is about a birthday, Super Bowl party is about the Super Bowl, and so on, right? When I became a teenager, however, I encountered the word party as a verb, as in the sentence, dude, we're going to party this weekend. Are you coming? Right? So these parties were not about anything. They weren't celebrations of anything. They were, in a sense, parties to celebrate partying. The biblical feasts are not like this. They are not a chance to party as a verb. Biblical feasts, we could say, always point beyond themselves and in in at least three ways. So the first is the biblical feast points beyond itself toward a community of celebration. A festival always includes a celebrative community. Another way of saying this is you can't feast alone. Um, Consider Exodus 12. Um, And this is... The, uh, some of the words that institute the celebration of the Passover. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And then jumping down to verse 43, this is so interesting. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. So celebrating the feast is the work of all the congregation of Israel. It sets Israel's national calendar. This shall be for you the beginning of all months. Moreover, the keeping of the feast is one of the marks of inclusion in the people of Israel. 
All of Israel is to keep the feast, and only Israel is to keep the feast. Right? In fact, verse 15 in the same chapter warns, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Oh, no, it's not there. Seven days you shall eat unleavened, unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, listen to this, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So there is, in fact, a sense in which keeping and celebrating the festival constitutes and establishes the community. It would be only a slight exaggeration to say that Israel is the community that keeps the feast of the Passover. And indeed, this is true for more than Israel and Passover. Cultures generally are to a large extent defined by the festivals that are characteristic of them. And likewise, people experience themselves as part of a culture by sharing in those festivals. I learned this in an interesting way during the eight years our family lived in Scotland. The first year there, we had a little Thanksgiving feast together, my wife and our infant son. And even though we had turkey and stuffing, we both talked about that didn't feel like Thanksgiving. And the main reason was that though we were celebrating the feast, None of the culture around us was. There were no Thanksgiving decorations in the stores. None of our friends, no one on the street greeted me with happy Thanksgiving. School and work continued like any other Thursday. And after a few years, we stopped celebrating Thanksgiving in Scotland. Um, Not because we weren't thankful, but again, because the occasion isn't meaningful when you celebrate as an individual. So one reason a festival is a communal event, has to do with the next point. Um, Festivals celebrate a shared history, and very often one that is defining for that people. One way of saying that is that festivals point toward a gift that has been received. They point backward to a gift that has been received. And of course, this is plainly the case with the Passover. Again, Exodus 12, we read, This day shall be for you a memorial day. A memorial day, right? You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast, and you shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever acknowledging some gift that has been received, right? The different elements of the Passover are explicitly set in place to mark Israel's exodus. The lamb reminding those the feast of the lamb's blood on the lintels of the door and so on. So a festival reminds us of some good that has been received. And so for that reason, the emotion accompanying a festival is not just pleasure or enjoyment, but gratitude. Sometimes the gift received might be rooted in a particular historical event like the Exodus. Other feasts, like harvest festivals, mark the goodness of creation or the faithfulness of God throughout the seasons of planting. 
in both instances, the past is received as gift and provision. The festival celebration says, what we enjoy this day, we enjoy because of the faithfulness and generosity of God. It's that recognition that creates the feast. The feast becomes a feast, in other words, not because the bread is so good, but because it's recognized and received as a gift of God. Peeper writes, it sounds funny to say peeper, doesn't it? I'm going to keep saying it. (laughs) Peeper, peeper, peeper. In fact, I had to ask Lanier before we started, do you say peeper or piper? Because it should be peeper. So if she says peeper, I'm going to say peeper. I think it is peeper. Anyway, peeper says, the festival is a day the Lord has made. It remains true because while man, while humans can make the celebration, we cannot make what is to be celebrated, right? We cannot make the festive occasion and the cause for celebrating. The happiness of being created, the existential goodness of things, the participation in the life of God, the overcoming of death, all these occasions of the great traditional festivals are pure gift. But because no one can confer a gift on himself, Something that is entirely a human institution cannot be a real festival. There is a third way in which feasting points beyond itself. How am I doing? You staying with me? Okay, good. Um, The Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann says that through sacramental feasts, such as the weekly Sabbath feast, all days and times are transformed into times of remembrance and expectation. So a festival points back to the gifts that precede it, and it points forward to its own completion. It celebrates not only the fruits of God's past provision, it experiences the present moment as sharing now in the promised blessings We've been thinking about the Passover as an example of biblical feasting. It's worth thinking about all the centuries when that feast was celebrated in suffering. The years that the people were in exile in Babylon or the centuries before and after the birth of Christ when Israel was ruled by foreign powers. Which is, And it's to say nothing of the Jews who contrived ways to celebrate Passover while in Nazi death camps. What would it have meant to celebrate a festival of freedom in the midst of oppression? Uh, The Haggadah is um, the traditional Jewish text that's read each year at the Passover celebration. The narrative portion of the Haggadah begins with the words, this is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. This year we are slaves. Next year we will be free. The Passover, in other words, not only looks back with gratitude, but looks forward with hope and expectation. And of course, the paradigmatic Christian feast, the Eucharist, has this same character. When we receive the bread and the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, right? The Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the gift God has already given us, but it also is sitting down now at the Supper of the Lamb. We experience now the feast that Jesus has prepared for us. So Peeper, in speaking about 
the Sabbath that we celebrate each week, says, The day of worship for Christendom, recurring every week, is meant both to recall the beginning of creation and to herald future bliss, and in thus summoning before the soul's vision both the beginning and the end of time, it throws open that wide, that infinite horizon which the great festivals must have for their full celebration. So we can say a feast is a celebration of a community. It's a celebration that helps people um, recall in gratitude the gifts that have been received, and it's a celebration of hope and expectation that looks forward to what is to come. Lanier? So, the paradox embedded at the heart of the kind of celebration that Steve has been discussing, of course, is that while the gifts of our feast are freely offered, the physical feast itself is not free. It is intimately connected with sacrifice and expense. No matter how simple or elaborate, the fact remains that we must invest some measure of time, our resources, our very selves, into the physical act of spreading a feast. And while some celebrations are more of a shared effort than others, the sacrificial element remains. Someone has to set the table for these fellow image bearers of the divine nature. Someone has to clean their plates and their soiled napkins. Someone must sweep the floor before they come and after they go, prepare the food, and scrub the pots. We cannot separate these realities from the realities that they point to. A feast is a gift of grace, but someone, literally and figuratively, has to pay for it. The cost of a real feast, of course, is bound up in love. Wash the plate, wrote Mother Teresa, not because it is dirty or because you are told to wash it, but because you love the person who will use it next. Pieper not only wrote about feasting, he also wrote about what he called sham festivals. We might think of these as counterfeit feasts. These celebrations masquerade as genuine festivals um, in the same way, for instance, that hurtful or destructive interactions between people sometimes masquerade as love or intimacy. So Pieper writes... When sham festivals foist themselves on men in place of true festivity, then the situation is really bad. There have been sham festivals all through the ages. Decadence of festivity, he writes, is an ever-present danger. So I'd like to spend a few minutes thinking about some of those counterfeits and corruptions of feasting that we meet in our culture. In other words, if we've just talked about what feasting is, we're going to talk a little bit now about what feasting is not. So the first is gluttony. One really common contemporary perversion of feasting is gluttony. This is feasting conceived of as treat yourself day, right? In a much... Thank you for that. Thanks. 
This, and those of you who know me well will know how uncomfortable I am in this foray into pop culture. It's, <laughs> it is for me a largely undiscovered country. Um, in a much loved, but fortunately I have kids who can guide me through these fields. So um, in, a, in an episode, it looks like I didn't put the quote up here, but in a much lo- loved episode of Parks and Rec, the character Tom Haverford explains, treat yourself. Once a year, Donna and I spend a day treating ourselves. What do we treat ourselves to? Clothes. Treat yourself. Fragrances. Massages. Treat yourself. Mimosas. Fine leather goods. It's the best day of the year. So, one way of misconceiving feasting is as self-indulgence. As a day to not worry what anyone else thinks and just do whatever makes you happy. Maybe, in fact, this corresponds to what I mentioned earlier, when party is used as a verb and when the celebration doesn't point to anything beyond itself. So gluttony doesn't look back with gratitude or forward with hope. The only thing it celebrates is consumption. Gluttony is feasting turned in upon itself without regard for anything beyond one's own pleasure. The glutton raises her cup but has nothing to toast but the drinking itself. We also said that a feast points to a community, right? But the glutton feasts without regard to others, without enjoying others or considering others' enjoyment. When I try to think of a cultural icon to represent this sham festival, I think of the all-you-can-eat buffets of the Las Vegas Strip. But in fact, it's not the venue or the location that turns a feast into a sham, but the orientation of our attitudes and desires. So Paul warns that we can do this with the Lord's Supper, right? So think about 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's not a feast. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So the Corinthians were, in fact, gathering for the Lord's Supper, but because they were focused on themselves, it had become a sham festival. What's more, when we engage in this sort of gluttony, we also practice a kind of idolatry. We come to believe that our deepest needs can be met by food or drink or entertainment or festivities. Wonderful quote from Frederick Beekner: A glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure to spiritual malnutrition. So feasting is not gluttony. It also is not escapism. This is a second counterfeit feast, or second corruption of it. This is feasting conceived as TGIF, or working for the weekend, This is feasting conceived of as the getaway, an escape, a time to forget it all, to leave it all behind. It's a kind of sham that is summed up beautifully by the philosopher and theologian Prince in his hit 1999. You'll remember some of the lyrics. I encourage you to sing along with me, right? War is all around us. My mind says prepare to fight. So if I'm going to die, I'm going to listen to my body tonight. Everybody's got a bomb. We could all die any day. Here is Prince teetering on the edge of the apocalypse. And what's the response? Before I let that happen, 
I'll dance my, light, my life away. The Apostle Paul articulates the same sentiment in a passage that's just as memorable, uh, though admittedly far less funky. Um, <laughs> if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So there is a way in which partying to escape is the very opposite of a Christian feast. The escapist parties to escape what time is, what time it is, right? Wants to forget what time it is. But feasts are a way of marking what time it is. The structure, they structure our experience of time, right? So we all know as school children that annual rhythm of Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, the long slog to Valentine's Day, then on perhaps to St. Patrick's Day, Easter, Spring Bake, right? Our calendars are structured by feasts. We live from celebration to celebration. Um, what's more, the escapist partier, at least in the case of 1999, parties because the future holds no hope. But Christian feasting, as we've already seen, is a declaration, even in the bleakest time, of the reality of hope. So the feast reminds us of the ways God has brought us, delivered us, provided for us, and even more, it points us forward to the great climax of God's story in the new creation. The Christian feast, then, is not an abandonment of time, but it's redemption and transformation. So I'll wrap up this part with a quote from Shmeiman again. He says, we are at work in the world, and this work, in fact, any work, if analyzed in terms of the world itself, becomes meaningless, futile, irrelevant. In every city in the world, there is each morning a rush of clean and shaven people getting to work, and every evening there is a rush of the same people, now tired and dirty, going in the opposite direction. But God, Shmeman writes, has made time and our work in it into the sacrament of the world to come, the liturgy of ascension and fulfillment. So he reminds the reader of the way in which each Sunday, each, gest- each Easter, gestures both back toward what God has done and forward to what God will do. He says, these two complementary yet absolutely essential dimensions of time shape our life in time, and by giving time a new meaning, transform it into Christian time. This double experience is indeed to be applied to everything we do. I think this is beautiful. We are always between morning and evening, between Sunday and Sunday, between Easter and Easter, between the two comings of Christ. The experience of time as end gives an absolute importance to whatever we do now. The experience of time as beginning fills all our time with joy. So a third counterfeit, um, one I'm all too familiar with, I'm afraid. Um, I feel a little exposed even talking about it, but uh, it comes in the way of perfectionism. Perfectionism shows up in this context all the time um, because I think it's something that we're constantly comparing ourselves against, this false ideal, um, and it's one of the things that keeps people from feeling that they can bring a feasting ethic into their lives. 
Perfectionism perpetuates the lie that we ought to be able to appropriate God's gifts, to grab and to flaunt rather than than receive and offer. And nowhere do we see this on better display than in those little squares on our phone, Instagram, Pinterest, what have you. It's tools for inspiration and ideas. Those platforms are great. I love them. Um, But when they become a measuring stick against which we hold up our own efforts, they can get really dangerous. If they make you want to love other people in really practical ways, if they fill your creative cisterns with life-giving water, which I guess could happen, um, or if they feed an existing fire in your heart to cultivate beauty for the love of God and the life of the world, then by all means, let them serve that higher purpose. But the operative word here is serve. It's a tool. And if social media makes you feel less inclined to bring people into your life, any kind of media for that matter, magazines or any intake, HGTV, whatever. Um, But if Pinterest makes you feel like a terrible cook, or if Instagram convinces you that your living space will never be good enough to invite other people into, then by all means, get rid of them. It is not worth it. Comparison is a snare And envy is a sin. And the only way for me to fully recognize their loathsome uh, presence and influence in my own life is to call a spade a spade. Or as Elizabeth Elliot would say, a bloody hoe. Um, The root of perfectionism is pride. But it's an especially ugly, especially insidious, especially self-absorbed kind of pride because perfectionism stands in direct opposition to our God-given ideals. Ideals of beauty, order, harmony, rhythm, togetherness. Perfectionism drives us to try and shape ultimate meaning in our own strength with our own poor resources. While ideals, rightly considered in the light of God's calling on our lives, invite us to place ourselves and our gifts at His disposal for the sake of a purpose higher than our own. I freely admit this is something I struggle with, but I'm learning to become more and more comfortable with the fact that it's a struggle um, because it's something that I have to be aware of. It's it's a form of weakness in which I can see God's strength at work in my life, and that makes it a precious thorn to me. (laughs) Um, Love and sacrifice always point outward, but perfectionism points inward. It is tied up with outcomes and appearances over and above what will make people feel loved and welcome. And there is absolutely no room for it at the festival board. So now that we have hopefully laid that old bugbear to rest, and with it any false notions of either pride or inadequacy, I would like to move into what this can all look like in the practical sphere. For if we merely load all up or even inspire you with these noble ideals of feasting and all these beautiful eschatological realities that Steve has so incredibly unpacked for us. Um, But don't leave you with something something concrete to bring into your own life. I I think that we do you a disservice. Um, Now, before I say any more on the practicalities of feasting, living, as it were, into a feasting ethic, I want to say that my only qualifications to speak to this issue are that this is something I love to do. My husband and I do it often. But more importantly, it was something that was modeled for me by my mother. 
and her mother before her, and her mother before her. Growing up in the South, it would have been difficult to have escaped an education and laying the table, even if I'd wanted to. But I'm indebted to my mother for the ways she led by her own example, how she managed to make special occasions extra special and ordinary days magical, simply by showing hospitality to her own family. But here's the first principle. You have to start by laying the table for your people, the people who share your home or your inner circle of life. I'm not saying that you need to spread a four-course meal for your kids every night or treat your housemates to a standing rib roast every Tuesday, but there are ways to live among your own people with a hospitable heart, to bring a feasting ethic into the realm of the everyday in a way that overflows naturally to the world beyond. I have friends who do this through the generosity of sharing restaurant meals, um, and I think that's a really beautiful thing to do for people. Um, one of the ways that my mother did this was to insist upon her having dinner together every night as a family. Growing up, extracurricular activities had to be considered in the light of their impact upon our family mealtimes. And whether we were having sloppy joes or the famous baked trout that she always made for my birthday, there were candles on the table, a lace runner or a checked cloth and some assortment of the blue and white china that she loved and collected over the years. When we had guests over, which we did quite often, they were invited into this pre-existing rhythm, this habit of hospitality that could expand or contract to meet the occasion. Now, our family mealtimes were not necessarily discipleship-oriented, at least not in an overt way. They were lively, they were hilarious, they were often very noisy. But there was always this undercurrent of deeply held values, which I firmly believe has followed my siblings and me into our adult life. The sense that sharing a meal with someone is one of the most intimate of opportunities to nourish their soul with beauty, with attentive conversation, with practical love, and that the comfort of a meal, be it festal or ordinary, somehow manages to break down the defenses we build up around ourselves in this oftentimes brutal world and to admit an experience of our own belovedness via the organ of our senses. To feast is to glory in our status as bearers of the divine image and to honor our body's humblest needs in the very same moment. And the beauty of this ethic is that you don't have to have a spouse or a family or even an ideal space to live into a hospitable mindset. We all know people who get hungry. And Jesus himself showed us that the best way, often the best way, to offer living water and the bread of life to the world is to pass out actual cups of cold water in his name. A few fish, perhaps, a loaf of bread, a pitcher of wine. The Benedictines are famous for their balanced flow between cloister and community. But if they weren't already practicing what they bring to the world behind the closed walls of the monastery, then it would have little lasting value in the lives of the people they are called to serve. So moving from a feasting ethic into the realm of an actual feast, and now I'm going to get really practical, um, the, the, the next thing I would suggest is that you count the cost. My mother used to have an index card with those words on it taped over the telephone. She used to have an index card that said, just say no. And 
Um, I come by my quick yeses very honestly. But, um, but she changed it and put count the cost. Um, and, and I think that these words serve as well in this context because there are hidden costs in spreading a feast. And we would be very wise to acknowledge them. Many of these we'd already touched upon, the specific conscriptions of our time and our resources, our space. But like the man building the tower or the king about to go to war, it's really critical that we honestly assess what an intentional gathering is going to ask of us. It makes sense, of course, to look at things from the financial side. A feast that we can't afford would be disingenuous and counterproductive. Less obvious, however, is the need to budget our time. It takes time to decide upon a menu, to invite guests, to provision and prepare the meal, and of course to clean it up afterwards. It can be tempting to look at the components of a feast in isolation rather than in the context of an already full life. And if you have small children or other people in your life to care for, this can add an extra layer of complexity and uncertainty to your days. Conversely, you can look at all, that, all that's required and think, there is no way I can add one more thing. And hear me, this may be true for the season of your life that you're in. Not all seasons are festal seasons. Right after my dad died, I didn't feel like having a party. <laughs> but I remember the moment that I did, and it was such a turning point in that stage of grief for me. Um, it was the first time that my life had begun to feel like my life again since my dad had died. We can live a festal ethic without throwing a feast, just by showing up for people, creating a hospitable space in our lives for them, where they can be seen and heard, caring for their needs to the best of our ability. But don't assume that just because it's a full season, that it's not a festal season. We all make time for what we really value. One of the ways that I try to budget my time is to make a detailed plan. Now, I am not an efficient person. I am no uh, Martha Stewart calendar crazy person. Um, but I, I do like to joke that I plead with God for this special dispensation of organizational skills every December. Um, but the reality is I sit down weeks before any proposed celebration and I start asking questions. Who will be here? What am I going to serve them? What can be done ahead of time? How can I utilize my freezer? Try to be as detailed as you possibly can. What tasks can you share with your spouse, your kids, your housemates, even your guests? How can you work in, in a little white space? And this is important. How can you work in, in a little white space on either side of your event for anticipation and for savoring? These are both undervalued virtues in our society, but I believe that they are handmaidens to the true feast. So after you make your lists, estimate how long each item will take, and then plug them in your, in your calendar, just like more of the steward. <laughs> um, but decide when you're going to shop. Like, make it a calendar item. If the beef wellington can be frozen ahead of time, pick it you know, a day, a couple weeks out, and make it then. Um, set aside an hour on a Thursday to iron napkins or write place cards if either of those are your thing. They're my thing. I love that. <laughs> um, but uh, spread it all out as much as you can in order to preserve your own joy in the feast. Um, because that's important. You don't want to be an empty cistern by the time people come to your feast. 
Um, the next thing that has helped me over the years is to sit down about a week before and give myself the gift of one more hour's planning. Looking back over my menu and my recipes, I like to set a time at which I'd like the meal to commence, generally, generally about a half hour after I've asked my guests to arrive, and then I work backwards from that target. I start jotting down what needs to be ready at what time, what needs to be turned on on the stove or popped in the oven, for how long and at what temperature. If I'm having a larger gathering, I can print this out and post it somewhere in my kitchen so that friends who are coming to help can refer to it easily without asking questions I can't remember the answer to in the moment. Um, and if it's a smaller group, I can keep it by me, by the stove, and let that part of my brain go on autopilot so that I can enjoy and interact with my guests. Either way, it's an extra little layer of insurance that keeps me honest and realistic about how, things, how long things actually take. Um, in fact, some of my little Thanksgiving and Christmas plans have become templates over the years that I can just tweak from year to year, and you know, rather than starting all over again from, from scratch. So, um, and I will say that this same strategy applies equally well to a larger gathering or a backyard barbecue. Like, there's always things to think about, and um, so I'm not necessarily just putting this in a formal context. Um, a couple of quick suggestions. Don't try out new recipes on guests, um, <laughs> which I'm very guilty. Um, it is much better to love people with simple fare that's already in your arsenal or to develop an arsenal than to try and impress them with a fancy dish you've never made before. I love the fact that um, in Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking, she, her recipe for crepe Suzette is very explicit. She has almost a paragraph. Do not make this for guests. Practice this on your family. <laughs> of course, I did not heed her advice. But <laughs> um, Also, keep your ingredients as simple and as fresh as possible. It's all about taste and um, you know, fr the fresh experience. Um, a few people have taught me as much about feasting and celebration as my French friend, Delphine. I'd always been intimidated by French fare, and while some of it, of course, is quite elaborate, it surprised and delighted me to discover just how simple ordinary French cooking really is. I will never forget the dinner party that Delphine and my sister and I hosted at my parents' house before any of us had places of our own. Weeks before the three of us convened to discuss the menu over cups of tea, Delphine's recipes spread out on the table before us. Then there was the rather vivacious trip to the farmer's market, wherein one member of our party was nearly run over by another member of our party, who shall remain unnamed, by the shopping cart, not by a car. <laughs> um, and, and Delphine scrutinized every carrot and potato with an exacting eye. The day of the party, we all donned white aprons early in the afternoon and set to work. Grams and ounces were carefully converted to cups and tablespoons with a little metric scale that Delphine had brought over to the States. She introduced me to the sweet pungency of Gruyere as we grated it for the shoe. Little puffs. Liz chopped vegetables with abandon and Delphine supervised carefully as pieces of veal were dropped into the simmering white sauce of the Blanquette de Vaux. Serious deliberation was given at the table setting. Plates were laid, removed, then laid again for the supreme comfort of the guests. And in the living room, a romantic little table for two was set for my parents. The guys, upon arriving, were politely banned from the kitchen while Delphine waited for the shoe to puff. But when dinner was served, no one could deny that it was worth the wait. 
A bottle of wine that Delphine's mother had sent over from Paris for the occasion was solemnly passed, and steaming, savory bowls followed. And during the cheese course, I remember stirring anxiously at my end of the table, eager to start the coffee and bring in the dessert, fearing that we had sat too long with no new diversion for our guests. Catching Delphine's eye, I made a movement to rise, but with the slightest, hardly perceptible shake of the head, she deterred me. I settled back in my chair with surprise and watched her, composed, relaxed, making everyone at that table feel that they had every bit of her attention. She had given her friends the gift of a meal, and she was enjoying it. She had no intention of rushing away the tranquil mood and meaningful conversation that her labors had produced. And I realized with an inward grin that everyone at the table was enjoying it as much as she was. Her peaceful demeanor had affected us all. I relaxed, and I stored it away as a perfectly happy moment. But it was a moment in which, through the loving intent of our hostess, eternity had invaded time, and grace had lighted upon the head of every person present. It made me think of the meal at the center of Isaac Dennison's remarkable story, Babette's Feast. We actually caught in hindsight, we always called it Delphine's Feast that night. <laughs> um, but Babette's Feast, um, if you're not familiar with it, it's been made into a film, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you want some inspiration for the kinds of things that we're talking about today, watch that film and read that story, or both, or either, but without delay. Uh, I mean, wait till the end of the session, but... Um, without spoiling it, I will just say that in this story, the French refugee Babette, 12 years a cook and maid of all work to the scant, a, pair, a pair of Scandinavian sisters, who are members of a rather austere Lutheran sect, Babette spreads a feast for their little village community, and it becomes this incredible experience of grace which leaves every person at that table transformed for life. No line in the story, I think, better expresses the implications of this sacrificial act of a meal than the rather dazed reception of the villagers themselves, a line which, to my mind, epitomizes the hope and the ideal inherent in any true feast and the gift we would all wish to leave with our guests. The vain illusions of this world had dissolved before their eyes like smoke, and they had seen the universe as it really is. They had been given one hour of the millennium. Why don't you stay up here with me? <clears throat> Lanier, we're just, uh, just have a couple words to say in conclusion, but I'm grateful for all the things that you've shared. Um, at the beginning of our talk, I said that the life and health of a society depends on its feasting. That's making a big deal out of feasting, declaring its importance. And then as we've wrapped up, Lanier has talked about not just big things, right? But things like ironing napkins, right? Or um, uh, making out place cards. We've talked about some of the practical ways we enact feasts. Um, and in fact, there is something wonderful about that tension between the big and the small. Um, there's a wonderful quote that is often attributed to Mother Teresa. Although when I was looking around for the source um, I found other people saying, no, she never said that. Whatever. It's often attributed to Mother Teresa, um, which is, we can do no great things, only small things with great love. 
So this is one of the beautiful things about feasting. God invites us to share in his transformation of the world, not just by grand gestures and huge undertakings, but by who we invite to our table and how we show them the love of Jesus while they're seated there. When we invite others to our small and ordinary feasts, we have the opportunity to echo the words that the Spirit calls out in the very last chapter of Revelation. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmood is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmood is an annual arts conference hosted by The Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered.